The birth of a baby is a defining moment in a woman's life. But what about the birth of a mother? That's right, when a baby is born, so too is a mother. This transition from woman to mother has a name. It's called matrescence. This developmental stage is as powerful and irreversible as adolescence, and yet few women have ever heard of it. So let's talk about it. Let's talk about it. Each episode, we will bring you honest and thought-provoking conversations, evidence-based research and knowledgeable guests in order to help you emerge a more powerful and aligned version of yourself. So join us, your hosts, Kelly and Bree, as we attempt to make sense of our matrescence journey and to help you make sense of yours. This week's podcast is sponsored by Erin from Wattle Tree Postpartum. Erin is a postpartum doula servicing the Brisbane area. Her services encompass both postpartum planning and in-home care, including, but not limited to, nourishing meals, light cleaning, newborn care, emotional support and belly binding. Some of you may know how passionate I am about doulas, having studied myself to support Bree through her home birth last year. Erin's aim is for you and your family to feel supported and nurtured during your time together. She's very passionate about supporting new mothers to follow their own intuition and find peace and joy in motherhood. As the saying goes, it takes a village to raise a child, and Erin's goal is to support you to grow your village and hold space for you as you navigate life with a newborn and beyond. Whether you're a first-time parent or about to have your fourth, you can benefit from Erin's services. As a special offer to all of our listeners, Erin is offering 10% off any of her packages when you mention this ad. So connect with Erin on Instagram or via her website at wattletreepostpartum.com.au to learn more about how she can support you and your family. Good morning, Lisa. Thank you so much for joining us today. We're in the closet. We're super excited to have you on. Do you want to start by telling us a little bit about who you are, where you're from, and what work you're doing in the motherhood space? Hi, guys. Thank you so much for having me on. Um, You guys are in a closet. I'm in a room that's covered in pillows. I'm like a little, I'm sort of in a fort at the moment, as if I'm playing (laughs) with my toddler. So (laughs) Very very professional over here. Absolutely. (laughs) Top notch. Um, Yeah, so my name's Lisa, um, Dr. Lisa. Um, So I have a PhD in public health and I'm a postdoctoral research fellow at a university here in Sydney. Um, I'm currently on my second maternity leave at the moment um, with my gorgeous little boy who is four months old. Um, so we're in the midst of a bit of sleep deprivation at the moment. So if I have trouble finding words, I'll I'll need you guys' help. But anyway, I'm sure we'll, we'll figure it out. (laughs) Um, (laughs) um, and I also have a gorgeous two-year-old girl, um, who made me a mother two years ago today. Um, so it's very exciting to talk to you guys on her birthday because it's not often on your um, baby's birthday do people ask you how you are going how your transition was um, mm. so this is sort of a unique opportunity for me to talk about myself for a little bit <laughs> while yeah. I celebrate my my beautiful daughter um, becoming two years old um, yeah so so um, I was hoping to talk a little bit about my sort of background that led me to where I'm sitting here with you guys today um, so 
as part of sort of my research, I, I have a page called now Researcher, where I disseminate research about motherhood, basically. Um, and the primary goal of my page is to show women and parents that the work that they do is incredibly valuable, um, that just loving their kids is all they really need to do um, and to to do things in a way that works for their particular family. Not Because I think there's a lot of noise on Instagram, social media, Reddit, blogs, everything that's telling you what you should and shouldn't be doing. Um, and that puts a huge amount of pressure on modern-day mothers. And, Kel, you had your boys before social media, yes? Is that that's right? That's correct, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. so you, might, you must have had sort of a different experience to what um we're experiencing now with just bombardment of information so even down to things like you know feeding solids to your baby now there's big pages devoted to um, preventing picky eating and you must do this and you mustn't do that um whereas back when you please um tell me if I'm wrong Kel but back when you were feeding solids to your babies it was probably like just give them some purees and away you go <laughs> yeah absolutely and what what you had was um actually your often your parenting and early parenting journey was very controlled by your immediate community yeah. and family mm. so the the mother-in-law the mother uh, aunts uncles um, other friends experiences and to some extent caregivers so my early postpartum period was heavily influenced by the fact that my elder son was born in the UK, mm-hmm. which was very, um, very different to the Australian system, very pro-midwifery, um, midwife-led care, um, the La Leche League, breastfeeding, mm-hmm. baby-led weaning, mm-hmm. things like that, that was a good eight to ten years ahead of where mm-hmm. the Australian system was. And so when I had my second child, which was back in Australia, I then was able to take a much more proactive stance by saying, no, thank you. I already know what I want. No, thank you. I don't need your advice. Yes, I am going to do this. You can't stop me. It's my baby. Um, But Mm. if I didn't Mm. have that first experience in a different environment, and to some extent because I was overseas, I actually didn't have the aunts, uncles, mums, who are all very well-meaning and, uh, you know, I on the one hand, I missed out on that support, but on the other hand, I also managed to dodge the the views of a prior generation. So mm, without mm, social media, so interesting. Yeah, I think that there's pros and cons of that, right? You have a smaller yeah. amount of influence, less voices, which there are pros and cons of that, right? And I think that that is something that's really challenging for modern day mothers, is that there are so many especially Instagram accounts that are very dogmatic, Mm. Um, you must do it this way. It's the only way. It's the best way. And then there's another account saying the exact Mm. exact opposite. (laughs) And the thing that I love about your account is that it really just cuts through the BS and brings it back to evidence because this is something I'm really conscious of on our page and on our podcast is that so much weight is given to the opinions and advice of mothers, of mummy bloggers and often our sample size is one or two Mm. and Mm. while we don't want to discount or take away from the importance of women's own stories and own experiences um 
it changes. You know, mm-hmm. if you had been following me after my first child, I would have been like, mm. sleep training is fantastic and I will never mm-hmm. bring my baby in my bed. And I could have influenced other people to do that. And then second baby, I'm doing something completely different. Mm-hmm. So when mm-hmm. you actually can bring it back to the facts and the statistics and the research, that can be really helpful. Oh, Absolutely. Um, and I'm also humbled by the fact that my two babies are completely different babies. Mm-hmm. <laughs> They're on opposite ends of the spectrum. Um, and I know um, your first baby was quite um, spirited. I think you've you've said before. <laughs> oh yeah, still is. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. And that's my daughter to a T. Spirited is the perfect word to describe her. Whereas my son, he's just so easygoing and relaxed. So the way I'm parenting them is completely different. And I've totally been humbled by that fact as well because when you first start, like you say, when you when you become a mother of one, you think, oh, this is this is the reality. This is how mm-hmm. people experience motherhood and having a baby. Um, and you you intellectually know that it's different for other people, but when you experience, you go, oh, that's right. It's different for everyone. It truly is. There's so many factors. Um, yeah, so basically with my social media, I'm try- like you say, I'm just trying to cut through that BS and go, okay, these are this is what research actually says, um, but you can apply it however you see fit to your to your family and your dynamic and what's going on for you because we're also different and our babies are also different. We've got different access to financial means. Um, we've experience things in our past that might be different to other people our babies are different we have a different relationship with our partner and work and all these things so it's impossible to say you must do this this way and that's the only way so I'm trying to sort of cut out that noise but I think when you first become a mother um, a lot of us come from either study or professional work Um, a lot of us are having our babies you know in our 30s now Um, and unlike you, Brie, you're, you're sort of the exception to that and that's that's so beautiful. Um, but a lot of us are sort of coming, we're at the top of our career before we, we take the plunge into having babies. So then all of a sudden we've got this baby who's like a Rubik's Cube, but there's no answers for this baby. Mm. <laughs> um, and we, we used to talk about that every day. Um, every day we'd try to get our daughter to go to sleep and try and get her in the bassinet so we could just have some time um with our hands empty um and we used to say it was like a rubik's cube that sort of cried at you (laughs) and it changed every day the puzzle changed every day so um what worked yesterday is not working today and that's such a spin out especially um as myself I'm a researcher I can be sometimes very black and white you know you put something in you get a predictable outcome um, and there's nothing really predictable about a, a newborn baby <laughs> to a certain extent. Yes, Kel? Yeah, and so I think what's really interesting, and I know Brie has a point too, but I knew what this would happen because we've all got lots to say. Yeah. But one of the things that I always, that I realised that I had my first baby at 30 and the same thing, I was in a global job, you know, right at the height, is that you get to a certain point in your life where you think you know stuff. And honestly, there is nothing that flattens you more than being (laughs) given the gift of clarity with a small baby. Because you, you, I think when you, sometimes when young women have babies at a younger age or potentially evolutionary wise, we, we don't have that time of conditioning to sort of think that we know what to do. And therefore we often just lean into listening to ourselves and saying, does this feel right? Yes or no. Whereas in some ways, the more, 
we get accolades or or mm. career highlights or think mm. that we know stuff the the harder it hits us because you get right back to ground zero there is no answer there is no playbook there is just what you're dealing with right now so it can be quite devastating to our identity and <laughs> you know in a sense that is what it is all about the identity and it's so interesting that you're currently two years to the day from your first experience mm-hmm. of becoming a mother and there's there's a reason that we originally called this podcast birth of a mother because it yeah. what that saying which is you know when you meet your baby for the first time you're about to meet someone entirely new and it's you Mm -hmm. and that is also the case Mm -hmm. with subsequent children so you are a different person than you were then and so recognizing on your children's birthday to say this is an anniversary of me being this new me as well is is really interesting yeah I think it starts so early on you know we are rewarded for problem solving we are taught Mm -hmm. in school that if you have a problem go research it find the answer come back and then that carries on through university and for many people in our professional life and we're used to being able to solve problems and it's a very intellectual process and I think that many of us are told subtly or hold these beliefs that these skills that we are cultivating in our professional life will serve us in motherhood. So maybe we lead a team of 15 people and feel really competent. Maybe we are a nanny and we look after little babies all the time. Or, you know, maybe we're an engineer, we're used to solving problems, or a flight attendant who has done the red eye for many years. So, Mm -hmm. you know, we may go into motherhood with these ideas either arising from within or placed upon us. I know as a nanny, everyone was like, oh, you're going to breeze through new motherhood. And I was like, hang on a second, I get to go home every night and get a full night's sleep. And I'm emotionally invested in these children, but how they turn out is not going to be on me. So I get to come in, you know, with a level of detachment. And so I knew that it would be completely different. But I think that many of us go in with this idea that these skills will serve us in motherhood, but motherhood is not largely an intellectual pursuit. It's so emotional, it's so physical, and no one has the answers. There is not a sleep program or a book that can weigh in on your baby, right? We can speak broadly about children and child rearing and motherhood, but no one can comment on your baby. No one knows your baby as well as you do. So it's not only logistically challenging, it's, as Kel said, a huge threat, I think, to your identity and your sense of self and your self-esteem when you've gone from feeling like a really competent, confident professional with control over your life and agency to having this little baby and you don't know why they're crying or how to figure out breastfeeding and every time you put a nappy on and it leaks and you know I think that you (laughs) kind of get put in this position where you can either hide from it and I think we see this a lot in men and I'm definitely generalizing but you can go back to work and kind of bury your head in the sand go to where you feel comfortable and confident or you can like sit with it and sit in the discomfort and if you are on maternity leave or taking an extended leave you have to you have no other option than to just sit in that super super uncomfortable place mm-hmm. um, yeah yeah I remember um just before my daughter was born so I worked up until the day that she was born um because I thought that that would that's fine um I worked up until 29 weeks with my son so it was completely different experience um but anyway I was sitting in a meeting sort of a a month before I had her and I was talking to my boss about how this is now another project that I'm going to go do Mm. I literally said those words 
because as a researcher, I do projects. I have Excel spreadsheets and I've got lists and I tick the boxes of the list and we get through it. We write a paper, we get a grant, et cetera, et cetera. So I was like, okay, so I'm going to feed the baby and then I'm going to put the baby down and they're going to sleep in their bassinet, no problem. Um, and breastfeeding will come easy to me because my mum breastfed. So that'll be fine, um, et cetera, et cetera. So, <laughs> I, so you can imagine my surprise when none of the things that I thought that I was going to tick off really worked very well for us. <laughs> um, and there's nothing, it's, it's sort of such a humbling experience and the great equaliser becoming a mum because you could be, um, in sort of in my field, you could be the professor uh, of a university, um, head of school, whatever it might be, but if you've got a baby who's not sleeping at night, you're, yeah, you're cooked. <laughs> it's, yeah. not, it's not easy. Um, so, so yeah, I, I reflect on, Kel, you've spoken in the past about how you're, when you were six weeks postpartum and you were in a mm-hmm. meeting, yeah. um, I think Who's about that all the time. Yeah, and your baby was crying and you were thinking, this is just not working for me. Yeah. How did you manage that, Kel? How did you, did you keep going to work the next day or what did you do? Did you change things after that? I, I did, and it's interesting your your comment. I, I can remember sitting, um, because I was in the UK and I'd recently moved there and I had no maternity benefits at all. So it's one of the reasons I'm super passionate about financial independence for women and planning because, yep. um, you know, money doesn't buy you happiness, but it sure buys you choice. And Absolutely. so the earlier we can plan for our own independence and plan for our long-term future, the better. So I worked right up until the day before my son was born um, mm-hmm. and I had an arrangement with my boss at the time which was um, I could keep working right up until that day so that I could take the six weeks off and be with the baby so I knew he was due the next day I had a feeling he was coming so I said on the I sat there on the Friday afternoon and said look you need to ask me all the questions you can because I was a project manager and I was like I'm going to have this baby and they laughed and said they all they both had kids and they said first babies never come on time you'll be back next week we'll see you Monday and I went no I'm project manager I do things on time this baby's coming mm. it's due tomorrow the baby will be here and sure enough 12 hours later I text them and welcome to the world and they just laughed to this day to go I can't <laughs> believe you actually had the baby on the due date obviously that's just a random thing we know that these are guesstimates um but it was that mentality and so I had six weeks and then I went back to work and. It took another about four to six weeks before I really um, broke apart is probably the way I would mm. call it because th- mm. that first period was I'm okay, I'm okay, everything's okay. And then at that moment where I realised I was on that call and I was trying to make the baby be quiet, there was a f- trigger in my head that said this is not healthy, it, it, this this is not going to be a good situation for my family. And that's when I my husband came downstairs and I said to him we have to go home. And he was not ready to go mm, home. And, mm. and I, he said, is that the only option? And I just said, we can't afford to live in London unless I work. I'm the primary caregiver. And I don't think it's it's not good for anyone if we stay. So unless you've got a better idea, we have to return to Australia so that we can afford to make the different choices about the way that we're parenting because I, I can't keep doing this. I can't keep pretending that it's safe and it's not safe. It's not safe for us here. And so that was the beginning of another journey. Yeah. So there was a stat I was reading the other day in a paper, in a journal, that said that 23% of American women go back to work within 10 days of giving birth to their babies. I and read. it just blows. Yeah, it blows your mind, doesn't it? You're still you bleeding. Still... <laughs> yeah. 
Yeah, cannot even imagine. I was reading prior a few weeks ago a book called The Motherhood Complex. It's by Melissa Mm. Hogan, I think. And she was quoting some research around women who take as little as six weeks paid parental leave are more prone to depression. And those Mm. who are working full time by four months after their baby was born are more likely to show high levels of anxiety. And that the one-year mark is kind of the ideal maternity leave period for you to have that time to settle in your motherhood and take care of your body and your mental health, but also not be penalised so much in terms of returning to work if that is what you choose to do. But that research doesn't help us a lot, does it, if we're not working in policy or influencing policy because Mm. most of us make that decision based on family finances, not Mm -hmm. personal choice. So... It's tricky, right? I was reading that and I'm like, okay, but who does this help? Because, you know, I went back to work based on family finances. Kel went back to work based on family finances. And I think that's the truth for the majority of people. Something that I was also thinking of while Kel was speaking was, and I've told this story before, that after Taj was born, I was doing some volunteering and we were working with mums who didn't meet the threshold for needing intervention from child safety, but who were struggling to respond to their babies and form attachment, that kind of thing. And we served some main populations like asylum seekers and refugees, um, parents who were disabled, single parents um, and professional women. And when I heard that, I thought it was a mistake. I was like, what do you mean? You know, why would they need our help? They have access to resources and, you know, they're educated and what could they need from us? And um, the the leader was like, no, what we see is consistently that professional women really, really struggle with the transition to motherhood. So I'd love to hear Mm. your thoughts on why that may be. Yeah, so I think this is a good time to sort of talk about my past as well um, because that sort of led to the strong identity that I had before I became a mum that then got completely shaken up um, and this sort of new identity that I have for myself now. So um, so I started work when I was 14 years and seven months or whatever the cutoff is that you can you can start work. So I was at the coffee shop making coffees Um, And I sort of kept that job on and off for about 10 years while I did my studies. Um, But after um, year 10, um, I was doing quite well at math and my my dad's accountant was looking for um, an accounts clerk, receptionist, something like that. And my parents sort of had a lot of financial insecurity their whole life. Um, And so they thought, you know, this is a great job. This is potentially a great opportunity for my daughter to go and become an accountant and earn good money for the rest of her life. And so as a 15-year-old, I was like, I'll just listen to what my parents sort of tell me to do. So I ended up working at this accountancy for 18 months. So they took me out of school, which all the teachers at the time thought was a stupid decision because I was I was a really good student. Um, and... Uh, that was, yeah, it was a really horrible environment to work in. So it was a family business, but a very emotionally immature family business. So there was lots of yelling and doors being closed really loud and just not a very good environment for a 15, 16-year-old girl. Um, and But I didn't want to leave because I didn't want to disappoint my parents. That You know, I, I at that age, you just want to please your parents so much um, in most cases. Um, 
but eventually I made the call and everyone was very disappointed that I decided that I didn't want to do that anymore. And from then on, I sort of, when it came to my professional life, I was, I then put myself completely in charge of that. So I became mature very quickly as a, as a late teenager, um, deciding that I would, yeah, whatever whatever professional decision, it had to be my decision because that first one just did not work for me. Um, so I went back to TAFE and got a tertiary preparation certificate, which is like a H- HSC equivalency. Um, not sure that they call it HSC anymore, but anyway. Um, but basically it's like a Cert 4, so I could go to uni and I thought, what's the complete opposite to accountancy? I'll do psychology. <laughs> That's pretty much how much thought I put into it. I thought, you know what, I've watched these people yell and and bitch and complain and come in and smack doors. Maybe I'll learn about the human brain. Maybe I'll get an insight into how people work. Um, So I started my Bachelor of Psychology um, when I was about 19 or something like that, 18, 19. Um, But at the time I had left home when I was 18 I was sort of I was sort of out of there. I was the kid who got their license the first day that they could get their license and I and I was pretty much in this escape mode. Let's let's get out into the world. But unfortunately, I landed in a not so great relationship with somebody who was physically, emotionally and financially um abusive. Um so that's really shaped sort of my early my late teenage to early 20s where um yeah, I, I then sort of learned another lesson about um, having to be completely independent and um, not relying on anyone else because they they can treat you really, really poorly. Um, and it's sort of why I hold such really strong feminist views now as a 32-year-old 30 um, because of those early experiences that I had with really terrible men. Um so I had to actually escape that relationship. So I went to work one day. I, I was at the coffee shop, went to work one day, called my mum and a friend of mine, and we got in the car, went to the house, got all my stuff, which all just fit in the back of my car at the time, and drove out of there. Um, and at the time I shut down as well. So um, my coping me- mechanism was to not be emotional about it at all. Um, and this will come up later when I become a mother. Um, so my coping mechanisms there were to escape, be completely independent and um, emotionally shut down basically. And so so everything went, went was okay from there. So um, I left that relationship um, and I finished my bachelor's, which was great, and I got a job at an Australia, a big Australian charity um where I was working with people um with disability so um and a a large percentage of my caseload was kids so kids who had multiple disabilities including like vision impairment and autism intellectual delay um those types of things and that was a beautiful job um and while I was there I got the opportunity to do a PhD um looking at implementing an intervention in this population to see if it would um would have any benefit so that's what I did my PhD on. But at the same time in my personal life, um, I were, I started dating again um, and I dated a couple of nice guys, but over the course of the relationship with these, like compared to the abusive relationship, these guys were really nice. Like there was no real issue. 
except that over the course of the relationship, I started to feel like I was their mother. I was doing the cooking, the cleaning, um, doing everything around the house. And and I rem- and I was Googling all the time. I was like, how do you get men to help around the house? <laughs> it was all a lot of, it was all a lot of, um, you know, you've got to be really nice to them. You've got to give them positive reinforcement. And it was, it was kind of like I was treat like I had to treat them like they were a child or a dog. And I was like, but they're an adult. <laughs> Come on, let's let's get on with it. And I know that this is a case that a lot of women experience. Um, and I eventually broke up with these these guys over time. And I thought, is it just me? Am I, do I have too high of expectations? What's wrong with me? That kind of thing. And I realise now that no, I, I I needed to have higher expectations probably. Um, <laughs> But <laughs> yeah. Um, but over the course of my twenties, the idea of getting married and having kids became objectively a worse idea <laughs> because of these relationships. Like the idea of being stuck with somebody, thanks to my abusive relationship, the idea of being stuck to, with somebody just sounded terrible. Um, and then having kids with them makes you such so vulnerable. Coming back to sort of that independence, you know, I can't rely on anyone but myself. Um, now this is where the story gets a little bit nicer. Um, started my PhD, um, was doing really well at that. It was project work, loved it. Um, and I was actually living with my husband at the time, but we were just housemates. Um, a a friend of mine who worked at the same charity as I went to high school with him and we were both looking for somewhere to live. And he thought that we would make good housemates, which is very funny. Um, and I remember a couple of weeks into living with him he was vacuuming the house and I was like what I don't understand I didn't nag him or ask him to do this or he just did it um and and that's been our relationship since then is that I've never I never have to ask him to do anything he just he's an adult man who just does his fair share around the house and I've and I still to this day am so shocked and surprised by that <laughs> because of my past experiences. But anyway, um, when we were both finally single in 2019, um, we got together very quickly and were married with and pregnant with our first baby within 10 months because I just knew that I was I was safe and in a good place with this beautiful man. Um, so I went from somebody who was like fiercely independent, marriage is a terrible idea, why does anyone have kids? to pregnant within 10 months wow. <laughs> and, and married. Um, and I haven't regretted that decision at all. Um, so, but yeah, so by the time we were married, I, in fact, I got my doctorate that week. Um, so in, in our vows, my husband refers to me as Dr. Lisa, which is beautiful, um, beautiful of him. Um, and, and like I was mentioning before, I thought, you know what, I, I'm going to nail being a mother. I've gone through so much stuff. I am so confident. I, I've done hard things. I've traveled by myself. I've left terrible relationships. I've, you know, all the things. I've worked for for 15 years at that point. I can do this. And then all of a sudden, my beautiful daughter was born and she was small for gestational age. Um, She had issues with reflux and she was in the NICU within the first day of her life. Um, And then when they brought her back to me, she was incredibly unsettled. So, Brie, you did that reel um, a couple of months ago now talking about that night in the hospital with Emmy and how 
full on that was. And I really related to that because that was, I went from this really confident person who, who had a really lovely birth. The birth was really straightforward to rocking in a chair by the morning, just waiting for my husband to come to sort of take over um, and coming back to it independent. So I was afraid of asking for help. So there was no way I was going to ask a nurse to hold my baby for a few hours so I could get some sleep. It just wasn't, it wasn't in my DNA. Um, um, and, and yeah, um, and also very unhealthy coping strategies. So sort of instead of being okay with having bad emotions, I just shut down and just couldn't, couldn't handle that situation. So yeah, in, in the course of a couple of days, yeah, independent, strong woman to, oh my God, what have I done? I can't handle this. Um, and of course, in the past, I would just escape. I'd just leave the relationship. I'd leave the job. I'd go and do something else. You can't escape when you've got a, when you've got a little baby, this is you now. So I really struggled with that transition of like, oh my God, I'm actually looking after this baby 24 hours a day. And it's, it seems silly. Um, before you be, before you become a mom, you intellectually know that, but when you're in it, you realize, oh shit, this is me now. <laughs> and so when we were back home and my daughter, um, was crying for most hours of the day and very colicky, very refluxy. Um, yeah, I just was not coping very well. Bree, were you going to say something then? Yeah, I was just thinking about how interesting it is that those coping mechanisms that serve us really well generally in our personal life and in our professional life prior to, prior to becoming a mum suddenly stop working when you become yep. a mum. And I think that, you know, you speak a lot about your personal experience and how that shaped, you know, this really individualistic approach to motherhood. But I think it's important to also say that we are socialised this way. We are living in an individualistic society. So to different degrees, we are all socialised and told that, motherhood is an individual pursuit it's an individual endeavor and that we shouldn't need people and that if we need people it's a personal failure and mm. so it's really tough it's easy to say you know ask for help it takes a village but then the actual act of doing that for reaching out for what we need when the other side of that is feeling like a failure is really tough so it's one thing to say it it's another thing to actually do it and I think that that leads to so many of us struggling on our own in our own homes with this baby at a time where what we really need is other people. Something that I do want to talk about before we mm -hmm. jump ahead you mentioned that your husband has always done his fair share of work. And I know that lots of people listening are going to be like, how? Because I know. Yeah, I, I know. was waiting for you to tell me what <laughs> answer you found on Google. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> I would love to hear a little bit more objectively. So that is obviously an, a fantastic experience that you've had mm. that has no doubt shaped your experience of motherhood. Mm, mm. What is the norm when it comes to sharing the domestic load and mental labour? What are other women experiencing and how does that shift and change um, through motherhood? And when we go back to work, I would love to hear a little bit about that. Yeah, so the census came out the other day, um, the new data that showed that women are still doing the majority of unpaid labour, unpaid domestic work. Um, and there's also the HILDA study, which is the Household Income and Labour Dynamics in Australia study, which um, investigates 17,000 plus people in Australia every year. 
Um, and that consistently shows that even if you have, even if um, you look at total time in terms of paid and unpaid, women are still doing more. So, for example, so say um, you're working 40 hours, your partner's working 40 hours, chances are you're still doing more unpaid labour than they are, um, even if you're working an equivalent amount of paid work. Um, so, and these stats are shifting, but quite, but very slowly and anecdotally, just when you talk to uh, your mates and other mothers, you just hear time and time again that um, they're just doing the majority of the work and that's when things like resentment and that, that kind of thing start to bubble up. Um, and often that doesn't happen until you become a mother as well. Um, for me, it did. It did happen before I became a mother because I started to feel like I was somebody else's mother and I wasn't in a position where I wanted to be somebody else's mother. Um, but there's also situations I've heard anecdotally of women speaking about the fact that their husband or partner did do a lot of the domestic load and then when they they got pregnant, um, they almost became a different person as well. So you hear those sort of horror stories as well. Um, so obviously when you become a mother, and especially if you're doing things like breastfeeding and that kind of thing, um, there is obviously going to be a time when you're doing more more of that domestic caring work. Um, there's no real way of avoiding that. But what we're finding is that even when the woman returns back to work, she's still doing more more of that domestic work. And it's and it's such a shame um, that that happens. And I think that when you return back from maternity leave, that's a really good time to sit down and go, okay. And I know, Brie, you've, you've been doing that a lot with your partner, which is so good. Um, to sit down and go, okay, this isn't this isn't possibly working for me. How can we renegotiate our roles here and figure out a way that works for our particular family? Because not every family is going to be 50-50 split. Um, that's not really realistic either. But in a way that everyone's needs are met um, is what we're sort of looking for. Um, so we can sort of disrupt that pattern that we're seeing in the data that comes up and up and up again every year um, that women are doing work and possibly they want to do more of that work. I'm not saying that that's not um, a motivation of some people. And likewise, lots of men, like my husband is very paternal. Um, he wants to be at home with his kids and spend as much time with them as well. And we need to have that opportunity for men to be able to take on that role as well. Um, yeah, and I love your... I love the stats that you did in one of the podcasts, Kel, where you said that 70% of women or whatever you said think about divorce <laughs> when they're doing the dishes. And I felt like that in my previous relationships. I thought, well, I'm, I'm washing another dish. Um, and I felt like I was pleading with them every day to say, you know, come on, just before you turn on your computer and start playing your video games, just put on a load of washing. Come on. Um, but that just never never eventuated so I just had to get rid of the whole man unfortunately in that situation <laughs> um but but the stakes were low then we didn't there was no mortgage there was no kids there was no marriage it was easy to sort of cut and mm. and leave but it becomes really really difficult when you're in that relationship um and you've got kids but I think Brie you're doing such a good job of um, setting an example of somebody who is open to communication and 
um, working with your partner and on your particular styles as well, your love languages and and figuring out a way that that works um, for your dynamic. And Brie, what do you think? Do you think you're sort of achieving that or do you think it's sort of always a work in progress? It is the single greatest struggle of our relationship, I would say, consistently. Sharing the domestic load and the mental load has been an ongoing struggle for us and it's something we still are finding really hard. I think that me going back to work and working a job where I am unavailable to him has been a game changer. So after Tash, I went back to work working with Kel, I could bring Tash with me. I could take Tash to an appointment. I could go home early and that was such a privilege but it also meant that I was always available to solve his problems and my work always came second to his and now I leave my phone downstairs in the staff room and I go to work and I'm unavailable until I get home and that's really helped us. Mm. I know that Kel has so many thoughts so I'm going to let her (laughs) jump in (laughs) but I just wanted to say quickly that you know, you see my life through social media as so many people mm. do, and I try mm. to be transparent, but it is still glimpses, and this is really hard for me. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. I would love, we should actually do a poll and say, uh, to the point about what's the single biggest struggle that you have in your relationship, yeah. because I think there are two key things that come up for me completely anecdotally and opinion wise. One of them is share of domestic load, and the other is matching libidos and I actually think Mm. there's a link I'm not saying it's causation it's correlation but I do think there's a link I'm calling it yeah okay yeah a hundred percent like it's really hard to feel sexy Mm. when you're covered in you know milk baby poo and just done five loads of washing and the dishes while they're sitting there with their feet up stuck in back a beer right let's be totally honest and then they're like hey baby do you want to get it on now that I am lucky that that is not the situation in my domestic load but you know over the last 24 hours I have been lucky enough to be involved in some events which were very women-centric which is incredible Mm -hmm. and had lots and both last night and this morning I had two different conversations which naturally went towards what we're talking about here and some of it was actually about doing the work to have the language to bring these things up before it's a high-stakes situation So in one of those conversations, I was sitting with two new mothers um, who had children under the age of three who were part-time working in an environment which is very women-centric. And we were they were having a, a a sort of joke about having the afternoon off to drink champagne and talk and it was so lovely and someone asked me about the fact that I had been the primary worker and my husband had been primary caregiver and you know how did that domestic load shift and one of the interesting underlying stories of that is that when we first hit the point where one of us needed to change working arrangements because we were dealing with a child with some special needs around um, autistic spectrum disorder the initial reaction from my husband was awesome I'll quit my job and um, I'll look after them and I went, whoa, 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 you haven't read the job spec yet? Let me give you the full position description before you decide. (laughs) Because if you quit work, which I'm completely fine with, you have to do all the things you can't just pick. And so when I wrote out the long list of all of the things from dishes and washing and cleaning toilets and doing homework and doing appointments and, you know, and going to the park and playing and being a father, but also all of the other stuff, I actually said, if you are happy to do all of these things, you can absolutely quit work. If not, go through and pick the things you are willing to do. We'll work out a division of labour and then we'll outsource what you're not willing to do. 
And the result of that was that we outsourced some of that work and which is where Brie came into our life. And I also mm. now have a cleaner. And I don't regret mm. those decisions whatsoever. I am privileged that I have the financial means to do that because I work full time. But over the years, many, many people have said to my husband, oh, look, how, how do you work part time? And he said, I just told work I was only available for those many hours a week. And if they didn't mm. want to go find something else. And people are like, oh, I could never do that. And he's like, well, that's your choice. You guys have to work together. But then conversely, this morning I was speaking to, um, a, you know, a delightful young lady who was considering going into parenting and was expressing that fear about what if it changes our relationship. And mm. one of the things that I said is we can all get the chance to do the work before to bring up high-stakes situations and to work through things because let me tell you, when you meet yourself after you have a baby, you take less shit from everybody. Right. And so that moment where you used to just go, oh, don't worry, I'll do it. You're much more likely mm -hmm. to push back. And then your partner might go, well, who's this new person? I don't know them anymore because I'm used to them being more compliant. And so actually starting to change that language and reset some boundaries and expectations long before you're in a really high stakes, low sleep situation is, I think, one of the, the gifts that we can give to prospective parents there's a few mm. things here that come up for me and one is that there is a program by the Gottman Institute called Bringing Baby Home. Mm. It's really highly recommended in terms of preparing your relationship for these exact changes. The other thing is that I think it's really important to be clear that housework is not mothering. I think it's Dr Sophie Brock mm -hmm. who, who says that frequently and who I'm quoting there and you know, I think that when we are the stay-at-home parent, it's so easy to go, I'll put dinner on, I'm home. You know, he's worked a long day. I'll put the washing on, I'm here. And then often when we transition back to work, we're already in those patterns. And I know that there is research around the fact that um, women's domestic load increases exponentially when they become mums and men's actually decreases, which is mind-blowing considering the collective <laughs> family load has increased yeah. so much. So not only are we going back to work, if that's our choice, and trying to juggle sick kids, you know, we're often the default parent, um, or as Eve Rodsky mm -hmm. says, the she-fault parent, we're the one that the school calls when the kid is sick. And, you know, we're transitioning into daycare and we thought that it would be as simple as dropping the kid off at daycare and going to work, but suddenly the kid is sick all the time and now you're sick all the time. And, you know, not only those real logistical studies, uh, the, the struggles of combining work mm -hmm. and motherhood, but then on top of that, you know, we are trying to continue to do out an, a disproportionate amount of the domestic load at home and we're constantly thinking, spending energy on the mental load and that makes it really hard for us to meaningfully engage with our work and be present and feel successful um and that's a real struggle I think when you're used to maybe working in that position and having a good grasp on it and being taken seriously mm -hmm, mm -hmm. oh Brie and Kel I could <laughs> there are so many things this brings up um things like the fact that we live in a patriarchal capitalist society that um, you know, gets us to think about productivity and productivity only. And, you know, the perfect mother myth that Dr. Dr. Sophie Brock um, is the champion for, um, you know, expecting the same level of cleanliness in your house, um, spotless house, beautifully dressed, good behaved children, all this kind of stuff that contributes to that. Um, and the way that men are socialised, um, as kids that they're more likely that people are doing things for them rather than getting involved in household chores it's just it's just a combination 
combination of so many things that we're trying to fight against in our own individual context mm. <laughs> and it's so challenging um even though I'm I I see myself as this really strong feminist woman I still find these conversations challenging with my husband who is absolutely beautiful and responsive to them but I still struggle to communicate sometimes what I need um and it took me a long time to figure out what I actually needed as well so when I first became a mother my husband would say what do you need do you need to go to the movies by yourself or go to the park or go and have a coffee or go see a friend and I just couldn't explain to him what I needed because nobody had really asked me that before it was more about what I could produce for the world and for other people um so there's there's just so many factors that go into our individual experience of motherhood and that identity um that comes from that. Um, so I can talk a little bit about um, the division of labour within my own house. Um, that might be interesting to your listeners. Um, so a big thing is is sleep. So um, I we're we're not co-sleepers in my house simply because I annoy myself with how much I move and and rock and um, I'm basically a like. Um, twirling around the bed when I sleep so having an infant in the bed would be really challenging for us so so where we go down the independent sleep um, sleep route of getting them in the bassinet and the crib and that kind of thing so my husband and I um, for the last two years in fact we we do one night each and we swap so um, so when it was just my daughter and she was in the crib next door um, we would just swap who had the monitor that night, for example. So whoever had the monitor, and if we heard, and if they heard the toddler wake up, they would go and see what she needed, um, and and support her. Now with the new baby, um, we we sleep in separate beds at the moment. So um, one of us will sleep up with um, our baby in the bassinet next to them, next door to our daughter. The the walls are like paper thin, so you can hear every, you can basically hear her turning in the other room um, while the other one sleeps on the other side of the house in this room, in fact, um, and tries to get a solid night's sleep. Now, if the baby needs a feed um, and say I'm not on shift, so I'm down here having a sleep, um, my husband will just bring the baby to me, plop them on the bed, I get my boob out, feed them, and then he takes the baby away. Um, so um, because we have to remember, especially for Bottle feeding takes time and energy as well, but so does breastfeeding as well. So something like 30% of your energy is just devoted to breastfeeding alone. So I need sleep in order to mm. make that milk. It's very important. Um, just because I'm the breastfeeder doesn't mean that I my sleep shouldn't be completely thrown out the bin in order for my husband to get eight hours of sleep every night. That's very, very important to my family and to me. Um, some other things... Talking about financial stuff, um, so the whole time I've been on these two maternity leaves, my husband has been paying my super um, because, unfortunately, lots of older women are experiencing a lot of financial insecurity because their super's just not there because they've been doing the caring work and looking after children and all that super, super valuable work that isn't remunerated just like... Um, like as if you were to stay at work the whole time. Um, so those types of things, that's very important to me, um, making sure that my soup is being paid, making sure that my sleep is prioritised. Um, and around the house, so 
uh, I put up a story today and um, it's about a website I found called Bill the Patriarchy. So basically it's you put in how many hours you spend doing domestic chores, looking after your kids, all this kind of stuff, and how much that is actually worth in dollar figures. So if you're listening to this and you're thinking, I'm not, my work isn't worth it, um, I'm just a stay-at-home mum, all this kind of stuff, I really would like you to go to that story and chuck in your details because you're going to see just how much work that you're doing. So it's as if, so just think about it. So if you're looking after a child at home and you're also cleaning, for example, if you were to be replaced, you would need somebody taking care of your baby. You would need a cleaner. You would need somebody to do your laundry for you. You would need a chauffeur. Um, all of these things would cost money if you're not doing them. Um, so I want you to see through doing that poll just how valuable the work that you you are doing is. And I love that it's called Build, Build the Patriarchy. That's just awesome. <laughs> that's awesome. I'm obsessed <laughs> with that. And I think that sleep and breastfeeding are so important in this conversation because in a way they do entrench some gender roles there. And sometimes the hardest parts of motherhood you actually can't pass off to someone. So it may not be realistic or the right choice for you to go overnight without breastfeeding. So getting that uninterrupted sleep may be really tough. You may not be able to express and therefore you do need to be the one breastfeeding. So Trying to find solutions that allow your needs to be met while also, you know, honouring the way you want to feed your baby or respond to your baby overnight is really tough. But with that being said, you know, it starts with valuing your rest and your well-being. And I hear a lot from women, you know, that, oh, you know, he needs a full night's sleep because he goes to work. Mm. And I'm like, honey, he's a, he's a mechanic. No mm. one, you know, like it is not... I'm treading lightly here, but, you know, if your husband is a pilot or a neurosurgeon and they're going to work and they have lives in their hands and it is really important that they are mentally agile, that needs to be factored into how you approach sleep. But we also need to remember that each day you're getting up and you are keeping children alive. And, you know, especially if you have a toddler where they're constantly trying to jump off chairs and put their hands in ovens, you are having to make millions of decisions every single day to keep those children alive. And I think that we need to recognise that you do need sleep too to be able to do that. It is literally a life or death situation. Um, I'm obsessed with the idea of build the patriarchy and I'm just thinking about... <laughs> Look out, website, breeze yeah. coming. <laughs> that. Um, but I'm thinking about the fact that we have come to a place where we value money more than we value time. So yes. while you may be spending more hours than your partner working, if it's unpaid labour, we don't value it. So, you know, mm -hmm. well, they're contributing X amount of money and I'm not. But time is equal. The amount of hours you spend are equal, if not more. So I think we need to take that into consideration. Yeah, we, we actually experienced this in reverse because my husband was a primary caregiver. And so one of the interesting things is my soup is bigger than his. And so we've mm. spent the last few years trying to re-establish re that because, again, at the time when we had kids, that wasn't even, people didn't even talk about that. It wasn't mm. just to, to think about paying his super. And so now we're constantly topping his up to recover from those lost years of of his career. And even in those early days, we had to, uh, he started to edge in with this language of, oh, 
oh, you know, can I buy this? And, you know, well, it's your money. And I was like, well, 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 hang on a minute. It's our money and this is the labour that you're doing. But so it's been interesting for me to have to have those conversations from the other side Mm -hmm. to change his language because he's also facing the societal thing about, oh, your wife earns more than you and does does that erode at your masculinity and yada, 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 which is the same. Mm -hmm. So it. But the point is, is that it's actually about a family coming together and having high quality conversations about what are the important things? What do we value? And people laugh when I say we have a family strategy and we've used one for many years. And I know, you know, Catherine from Mother Up does amazing work in her canvas because it's actually Mm -hmm. about having a common understanding about what's important to each other and then working out what works for your family. And those conversations are so important to have ideally, before you're in the high-stakes situation. Yeah, I wanted to put a name to this because so much of what we're talking about comes under that term of the men, of the motherhood penalty. So that's mm-hmm. a term which sociologists have coined and used to describe the negative impacts of having a baby on your career and your earnings. So it affects things like how much you can earn, your ability to get hired, whether you're considered for promotions, how it affects your super and your pension and future earning potential. So we're not just suffering right now, you know, we're not working. Mm -hmm. This has really meaningful implications for our future finances and therefore our future security and the choices we have, you know, should we find ourselves potentially divorced or widowed, how that would impact us then. Um, And I've got a great quote here from a journalist called Georgie Dent and she said in every country to varying degrees having a baby erodes the capacity of women to develop and maintain economic security and participate and progress at work in the same manner as their male peers. The gap is costly from a social and economic perspective at an individual and a collective level. And I think that that just is huge because it speaks to how many areas of our life as individuals and collectively as a society, motherhood impacts upon. It's not just an individual thing that you are struggling with. It's very real and we're all trying to navigate it with different resources and support. Um, but it's it's not a personal failure if you are struggling in this department. Something that I would love yes. to introduce is Dr. Sophie Brock's concept of the care-career conundrum. Now, I will be the first to admit that I'm still wrapping my head around this. I am currently going through her Motherhood Studies Practitioner Certification, but it's been so profound for me to have a term and a concept to frame these struggles. So I'll tell you a little bit about it, and if you want to go deeper, you can definitely have a look at Sophie's work. And I'm sure you'll be able to weigh in here. But essentially what it captures is the fact that the ideal worker is someone who is unencumbered. They are someone who is available to work on short notice, long hours. They're going to be able to focus on their work, be uninterrupted. They are generally self-focused or focused on the team. Um, They are able to mentally engage with the one task. They're not being pulled in different directions. Now, if you contrast that to the ideal mother, as our Western society defines it, it is someone who is selfless. They're wholly available to their children. They are available on short notice to go pick them up if they're sick. Um, They're always juggling a million different tasks. They are self-sacrificing. They put their family first, you know, really buy into that intensive mothering ideology. Mm -hmm. 
Now, not only can you not succeed in being a perfect mother or a perfect mother, you absolutely cannot do them both at the same time because they are so polar opposites. So what tends to happen here is that women who are really caught in the middle of it, the, you know, the working mums, are constantly feeling pulled and they constantly feel like they're failing. They are a shitty employee and they're a shitty mum. And I think that that's really important to talk about because often we chalk it up to individual failure, which it's not. You're set up to fail. And I don't want to disempower people or make people feel like it's hopeless, there's no way to succeed. But just having a term to describe that, understanding that it is a universal phenomenon can take some of the pressure off. Yeah, you have to work like you don't have kids and you have to look after your kids like you don't work. Yeah. Um, yeah, like you say, Brie, it just sets us up all to fail and we're working against these huge structures in our own individual lives. So 100%, if you're listening to this and you're this week, you've thought, oh, I'm failing at this, I'm not doing this, I'm not doing that, it's not you. Mm. <laughs> you're probably doing an absolutely fantastic job. It's just, yeah, we're working within this structure that's just not set up for us um, to both work and to look after our kids. Um, so even in my own house, if I'm at home with the toddler and the, and the new baby by myself, um, I basically don't do any household duties. I might chuck on a load of washing. I might empty the dishwasher, but all of those things can be done with my husband when he's home later that day. Um, and that's, that can be really hard to think about because we think of a stay at home mum as somebody who looks after the kids, but also keeps a very clean, spotless house. But when you do things like build a patriarchy, you realise that that those things are almost impossible to, to be able to do all at once. Um, and so, yes, we're working within these systems um, that are setting us up to fail, but on an individual level, there are some things that we can do to lower those expectations on ourselves to help promote our well-being because motherhood is the long game. And if we're pushing every day, every hour, every day, we're going to burn out or worse. Um, so taking care of yourself is one of the one of the best things you can do for yourself and for your children as well. Because what we want to do is when our kids are in our position, they're doing better. They're, they're, they understand the value of what they're doing. They have those lower expectations of what they can achieve, achieve in a day. I put achieve in um, bunny ears because that's such a sort of productivity word. Um, and that they're doing a, a bit better than what we are doing now when we're so stretched thin trying to make everyone else but ourselves happy. Um, it's almost impossible. Yeah, yeah. Look, even uh, one of the conversations I was having this morning really triggered something in me, which is often for those of us who have um, children, which, you know, we used to call late, but now it's fairly mid-range. So let's say 28 to 35, there is this is often the the peak or the height of our ambitious period about wanting to get ahead in the world. And that's that's not always career. Sometimes that's financial. Sometimes that's if you're a sporting professional or it, a lot of it is about that identity of you're supposed to be an adult now. What are you making of yourself, <laughs> right? Let's really boil it down to that, which many of us um, focus on our careers because that is the society that we live in, in Western society, as you say. This also comes at a time when we're also often thinking about our choices to have 
kids and whether or not we can, because once you get to that point of saying, do I want to have children, then you face the question of, can I? I've never tried to conceive before. Would that be possible? But we often feel like we're running out of time in our careers. And as a nearly 45-year-old woman looking back, I was wondering why I was in such a rush because part of mm. me was, was was saying, well, as a season reproductive and evolutionary-wise, there is a time when we are best set up for childbearing years. And whilst no one wants to talk about that and I want to empower every woman to choose from the you know, they're, when they become able to carry a baby right through to menopause, if they want to choose to have babies, like that's their choice. The point is, is that is more finite than our careers, because now we're seeing that women will live into their 70s and 80s. And evolutionary wise, our reproductive systems are not designed to stretch to that because that we still haven't caught up. So the thing that I often say to women who are very much in that height of the career is, actually, you have time. Don't be in too much mm. of a rush. It's okay. You can get your career back later. In fact, you may decide you want to do something completely different to what you're doing now because when you meet the new you, you will have new values and new ideas. And so whilst we often want to get stuff done and establish ourselves, there's a part of me that also says it's okay to slow down and it's okay mm. to not be in a rush because there there are some things that can take time and, it, and it, it's it's like compound interest. It sneaks up on you. The things that you lay down in your 20s and 30s pay off much, much later. That's the same thing with parenting. It's a long game and compound interest is very hard to see ahead. And in mm. the rearview mirror, you can see the hockey stick effect. I'm yeah. going to come back to this because it's a profound point, but I just wanted to highlight how normal it has become to have children when you're that little bit older because I've recently started a new job job as we've talked about and everyone is shocked that I have children <laughs> shocked every single day I have this conversation and actually someone said the other day you know how old are you and I said how old do you think I am and he was like maybe 19 20 which I'm 26 and at that time my little boy walked in and I was like well that's my kid and he's four and a half so you do the math and the next day he was like, wow, I, you know, I had no idea that you had kids. So are you a single mum then? And I was like, what? What about this situation led you to the assumption that I was a single mum? Like, I'm sure we can unpack that in so many different ways. But I think probably underlying it was the perception that if I had children this young, it was probably an accident, not planned and all of those things. So I am enjoying having that conversation over and over and the shock factor. Not, not to mention the occasional compliments of how young she looks and being cracked on too, which let's be honest, we're still women. I'm honestly, I'm honestly, I'm too young to find it flattering. I had this conversation the other day um, on social media about the fact that I got refused service of alcohol the other day because yes. I didn't have my ID. So I had to go sit in the car with my two children while my husband went in and brought it. And I was like, I'm not even old enough to find that flattering. I'm just like annoyed because it took extra time. So one day I'll look back on it and be like, damn it, I should have appreciated that. But what I wanted to point out is that when you said that you don't do any housework while mothering, I was like, oh, how radical. Like, what, what <laughs> Very little housework. I, I definitely do a little bit, but not, but not too much at all. Which yep. is crazy that I was even shocked by that because, you know, <laughs> caring for children is a full job. You know, when childcare workers do it, that is their job. 
often when nannying, you just look after the child. It is full job, but we expect to be able to juggle so many different things. And this is something that has really been a source of tension for me, that when I am mothering, I am expected to be doing jobs as well. And with me going back to work, what I noticed very early on was, and I've spoken about this before, was that Matt just wanted to parent. He just wanted to be with the kids. And he got to be the fun dad. And then I would come home from work and he would leave for work and I would have to clean the house up, do the dishwasher, cook dinner. And I'm not a fun mum then because I'm trying to get the kids to entertain themselves and I'm snapping at them like, I've got to cook dinner, just be quiet. And so then I felt really resentful that he got to be the fun dad and then I got to be the grumpy mum. And just yesterday I came home, I'd worked all day and Matt was going to work all night. And he had packed the dinner that I had cooked to take to work. So I'm going, oh my God, now I've got to cook me dinner again and the kids dinner. And I said this to him, I was like, that's really frustrating. It's six o'clock, the kids are ready and now I've got to cook dinner again. And it would have been really great if you could have cooked dinner today. And he was like, well, I was parenting all day. Like, how would I have cooked mm, dinner? Interesting. Like, well, you know, you only had one kid today. I now have the two kids. You had the kids while they were fresh. They're now really ready. And I've got to cook dinner. And he's like, yeah, but it's not that hard. It's It was a like a pre-made lasagna. You just have to chuck it in the oven. Like, you can easily do that with the kids in tow. And I'm like, do, you, uh, do I need to connect these dots for you? And he was like, Okay, I got. Yeah, okay. I'm going to put in I'm going to put it in the <laughs> oven now for you and I'll set the timer and just like making these connections which I think that we're a pretty egalitarian couple and we definitely hold those ideals. But often you just don't know what it's like for the other person and what I have tried mm. to do now is say I'm not doing these jobs while I'm looking after the kids. It is unreasonable. It is unsustainable. So if you want me to do a disproportionate amount of the domestic load, you need to have the kids while I do it. And that mm. actually works quite well for us because until recently I've done a lot of the caring for the children and I actually quite enjoy doing the cleaning because it gives me a sense of satisfaction, a sense of completion. I can listen to an audio book. So, and he prefers to parent, just play with the kids. He's really good at that. It's really easy for him to just tap into that young part of himself. So recognising that and going, it's okay if it's not 50-50, but I can't expect it, be expected to do that while parenting has been a big shift for us. And it's not perfect, but it has helped. It's mm. one strategy that at the moment is making things a little bit better. And that'll continue to shift as the kids grow and I'm now going to be working more. And I've said to him on those nights, it would be great if you could cook dinner. And so it's like, it's a constant renegotiation, right? And it's mm -hmm. just because mm -hmm. something works for another couple is, does not mean it's going to work for you. We can draw inspiration, but replication is not really key here. Yeah. And Correct. just the whole sitting with the discomfort of having a dis an uncomfortable conversation then and there in the moment and being able to hold that space like that that's so underrated because hard. he's walking mm -hmm. out mm -hmm. and you're like I don't want to send you off with a shit bomb but I need to tell you right now this yeah. is important to me and it's most relevant now you're going to have the teachable moment is now yeah. and being able to sit in that discomfort of having that at that moment and then not carrying that around afterwards yeah because I think so many of us don't want to, myself included, be put into that nag role. You know, you're mm -hmm, always nagging. Mm -hmm. You're always asking me to do things. Just get off my back. 
we don't want to mother another child another child we've got two we've got one we've got five whatever we don't need another one and our partners don't want to be treated like children we they don't want to be infantilized so it's tricky and i don't know the solution <laughs> i wish i could yeah. come to it does that degree in psychology help you at all? <laughs> well, I did it a long time ago, so a lot of it is outdated probably, but I guess maybe a little bit. <laughs> and this whole book, right, I'm thinking at the moment about Fed Up and the wife drought. There are whole mm. books dedicated to this and some mm-hmm. purport to have the solution. Others just write about it and come to the conclusion that there's work to be done on a societal level and an individual level and it's really tricky but something that's been really helpful for me is knowing that it's not just me right because my initial thought my immediate thought is either I'm doing something wrong or I've picked the wrong person (laughs) and to hear that this is a really common struggle especially after we become parents It's validating. And I think that it is also super relevant to this conversation because, as we said, this impacts our ability to show up to work. If we are already, you know, I know we have kind of adapted this term, but the second shift that, you know, feminists have spoken about and written about, you know, if we are doing double the work, if we are doing a whole heap of work before we can even get into the office, that affects our professional career and our professional identity. Absolutely. Absolutely agree. I wanted to go back to something that Kel was talking about before about um, uh, finding your identity after motherhood in terms of your career and work and that kind of thing. Because I remember being in my early 20s and looking at mothers who had pivoted into another career and thinking, oh, that's a bit late, isn't it? <laughs> you should you should already be at the top. You should already know where you're at, all this kind of thing. Um, and it's so funny that when I when I became a mother, about seven months into my into my daughter's life, I thought I'm I'm reading all this stuff on motherhood and research and and I'm really enjoying that. That was giving me a lot of that was filling my cup spending my time doing that. And that's when I started to play Nourish Thrive. And at the same time I was um, researching products and using products and testing things and sort of using that part of my brain again that made me feel a bit more comfortable. Um and had you told me when I was 20 that at 30, I, I think I was 31, I guess, when I started playing Irish Thrive, that I would have pivoted into a whole other thing and started an Instagram account and started doing website design and SEOs and that kind of thing. So I would have thought, what? No, no. So it is funny that becoming a mother can unlock parts of you that um, – that you haven't used before and it really aligns what your interests are and what's important to you Um, because I think that we sort of we get the degree we tick the boxes we do all the things and and people tell us oh you know you should try this and you should do that and you go oh yeah I'll do I'll go and do that but then becoming a mother you go oh wait a minute no I my opinion matters no I don't have time to be worrying about what other people what other people think is good for me um, and so I found becoming a mother a really empowering experience for my work life and even in my academic life. So when I went back to work um, before this maternity leave, I was put on a project that really wasn't aligned with my interests whatsoever. And Lisa, three years ago, would have just gone, would have just done it, would have just gone, okay, that's another thing for my resume. No worries. I'll just keep doing it. But it was really starting to affect me. But because Becoming a mother was such 
a huge identity shift for me where I went, you know what, this isn't working for me. I need to get off this project immediately. And I pretty much said that to my boss. I, I, I'm, I'm sorry, but um, this project isn't working for me. I'm not doing good work. I need to be taken off. And that's better for everyone. It was better for the people who were on that project team, the students that we were teaching, all this kind of stuff. Um, it's the first time in my career that I actually said no to something. And that, and it actually ended up being totally fine. I still had a job. I, I, everybody treated me completely the same. And I think that that's really quite valuable because we want employees who have a really good sense of self and a really good understanding of what they're good at, what they're not so good at, um, all that kind of stuff. So, yeah, it's becoming a mother is such a beautiful thing for us as an identity uh, as a person and can be really, really um, great for employers as well, I think. Because um, I'm looking – yeah, sorry, Kel, you were going to say? No, I, I mean, I'm – I'm keen to hear your next point and then I can hold my thought, I promise. I just get very excited so you can see why. <laughs> <laughs> no, because at the moment I'm thinking, because I'm obviously on maternity leave um, from my academic position and I've started to look at other opportunities that I could potentially be qualified for and, and enjoy. And it's funny the conversations I have in my head about it because I'm thinking about emailing people and asking them for a coffee and, uh, and thinking about being quite open about what I like, what I don't like, um, and my family situation. So I'm on my second maternity leave. Sorry, my headphone just fell out. Um, <laughs> Technical being, difficulties. Yeah, absolutely. And being quite open about that because usually I go into situations where I'm in interviews or whatever and I get rid of my personality and just turn up as what I think that they want me to turn up as. But this time I feel so much more empowered to turn up and be like, you know what, I love research, I love data, I don't particularly like teaching um, and talk to them about that um, in a way that's actually going to work for me as opposed to what I think is going to be the good idea at the time. Mm. Yeah, yeah. So and, can... and look, this, this is probably a whole other conversation and I think it will be interesting to get some feedback from the community as whether um, helping people with return to work and some more things is is a whole other discussion. But one of the things that happens when we get more in touch with our authentic selves and more willing to show that to the world is you, you start to dig up really early if there is an alignment of values. Because if you go to that conversation and be like, look, here's what I love, here's what I'm good at, here's what I'm not great at, this is what I've got to offer. And they straight away go, oh, we're not going to be a fit. I'd rather know now in conversation one than start the job and be miserable, both of us. Exactly. And, and one of the things that I've found with my team, because I am in a people leader role, is the more real I am with my team about where I'm thinking, where my situation is, and the more that I empower them to share that, the better a team we become. And you also, I'm also seeing in particular men responding to this because we're all carrying our whole world on our back. And to have to turn up to work and put on your mask is actually very tiring and you're not always mm -hmm. able to bring your best self to work. Now, in a leadership role, sometimes we do have to put on our mask because there are things that we know that we can't tell our team. But being able mm -hmm. to have a safe space at work and collaborate in our best selves actually creates an amazing ripple effect 
And I see that really positively coming into business. So we're looping that back to the identity. Sometimes when we have children, we do a complete turnaround and say, actually, I really dislike my job. I always have. I just thought that was what <laughs> society wanted of me. I've actually always hated it. Now mm-hmm. I'm just willing to admit it to myself. Sometimes we go, I actually really love my job, but there's logistical and real constraints to me being able to be my best self and how do I tackle those? And then sometimes it's a range between, it's a spectrum. But what I do encourage people to do when, particularly when they return to work and they realise they do love their job but there's constraints, is to be able to start to chip away at those to make, actually be upfront about how the environment can be adjusted to allow them to bring their best self. And that's something that businesses have massive unlocked potential to do one-to-one conversations about what is actually holding you back from doing your best work in the new Mm -hmm. situation and the new you. Because if we're having those conversations and there is another whole thing around the untapped potential and productivity in the Australian economy and the world because the, the time and intellect that we have to offer as mothers doesn't fit neatly into the constructs of business. So this whole great resignation, I call it the great reckoning. And this, I can Mm -hmm. wait to see Mm -hmm. where this goes. Yeah, I think I also want to honour that this is such a spectrum, right? And the individual experience Mm -hmm. is going to vary so much. So we can talk about some kind of common and collective experiences and also honour the individual. There are going to be people that can't wait to get back to work and feel really fulfilled by that. We are also assuming a level of privilege around making choice around what kind of work you do and what kind, what you're qualified for and the ability to go to your employer and say, I'm not satisfied, I want something more. Um, you know, there will be people who had children in the middle of, you know, qualifying as a doctor and they do want to see mm-hmm. out what they've done. Um, there'll be people who don't need work to fulfill them who you know for you maybe feeling fulfilled by play nourish thrive that that ticks a box for you for us Mm -hmm. the Mm -hmm. podcast um you know so it is so varied and something that's been really lovely after chatting to Rachel um two episodes back was I had a lot of feedback from women saying this has really prompted me to reconsider right I don't have to return to work. I'm not the same person anymore. That job no longer fits me and I have the privilege to weigh up other options. And um, I ran into a friend, into Danielle, actually, yesterday at work and it was really awesome because we chatted briefly about work and I was like, I'm so happy. I love it. Like, I get to, I love getting my steps up. I go to work and I get 20,000 steps up and I'm like, (laughs) exercise, done, tick. Don't need to make time for that. Um, like the human drama in the kitchen when the chef's like yelling at someone, love it. I'm like, these are the problems I want to be dealing with, someone who got the wrong meal, instead of like the complexity of sitting at the doctor going, you know, we need to explore neurodiversity and how do we get a mental health plan? I'm like, sometimes I just want these like menial tasks and small problems and I chuckle with older people and so work is not fulfilling me wholly and Mm. I want to know that that is an experience too whereas other people it will tick all their boxes and that is valid and so there's so much room for unique individual experiences here and I think that what tends to happen is we're damned if we do damned if we don't so if you want to go back to work full-time like well 
you know, think about your kids. Aren't they going to miss you? Is it good oh, for God, kids to be yeah. in care full time? Like, you know, don't you enjoy being a mother? And then the other side of that, if, if you don't go back to work, like, okay, well, she's not very ambitious and, you know, <laughs> do you, you know, are you just going to leave your career behind? And so but you do all day. Exactly. So really, <laughs> there's freedom in accepting that we cannot win here. So it's okay to just make mm-hmm. the choice that feels right for you. Absolutely. And I'm wondering at what point are we going to start putting caring roles and um, our mothering on our resumes? I'm sure it's coming at some point because this absolute skills and things that we learn when we become a mother are so amazing and valuable. And it's just a in our resume, we just leave a blank space. Yeah. Um, as if nothing happened <laughs> when we had this whole identity shift um, and the amount of skills and things that we picked up. I wonder at what point are we going to start putting that on our CV and putting that prominently? Um, I wonder when our kids are kids are going for jobs. I don't know. Um, but yeah, yeah. I, I like I like what you guys say. You guys say this all the time. Something along the lines of some people need to be away from their kids for one hour, and some people need to be away for forty hours. Yeah. And like you say, Bree, there's such a spectrum here. Um, and at no point are you a bad mother. At any point on that spectrum, you're a human being, and you're allowed to have interest outside of your family caregiving roles. Um, and that's beautiful in itself. Mm. I think that it's time for us to wrap up. We could go on yes. for another two <laughs> I think so too. And it is your daughter's birthday, so that is one very good reason to let you go. So before we finish, firstly, I would love to hear if there are any resources or final quotes or something you want to share with people, and then subsequently where people could find you if they want to connect with you, if they want to purchase from your store, let us know. Yeah, so I'd love it if you guys could check out my Instagram, which is now at drlisa.researcher, where I share um, research about motherhood and matrescence and all that good stuff. Um, And I'm hope with the goal to make you feel a little bit more at ease at making the choices that work for your family. Um, And as I mentioned before, I created an online store where I sell um, essential baby products and there's gifts and and all sorts of lovely stuff in there. Um, so I don't think that any product is going to make your life magically better in terms of like sleep and feeding and all that kind of stuff. And I sort of hate that marketing BS. But um, at some point during our mothering journey, having the odd product is actually quite helpful. And so I try to stock sort of an essential range of products about um, sleep, feeding, matrescence and that type of thing. So you can check that out at plainnourishthrive.com.au or you can just go to my bio and there's the link there. Um, but, yeah, so I, I'm on this journey with you. I'm learning as well um, and reading this research and, and sending it out. And there's sometimes, like right now, while we go through the four-month regression where I'm not doing a lot of that at the moment, I'm just trying to get through my day. And then there's other times when I'm able to post up up a lot. Um, But, yeah, it's been such a beautiful experience talking to you both. I love your podcast. I I have to listen to the one last week. I'm so excited to listen to that one. Um, But it's just been fantastic. And I'm I'm often listening to you guys just nodding my head the whole time, like, Yes, yes, absolutely. Um, this is the experience. So thank you for letting me come on and contribute to the podcast as well. I really appreciate that. 
Oh, it's an absolute pleasure. And I want to do one final plug for your website, Play Nourish Thrive. Um, you helped me out earlier. As um, a woman in business, we often have people who go on maternity leave. And I had this real thing about we send flowers at a time mm. when it's completely useless to send flowers. So you very kindly helped to put together a a pack for new families. And so if you know someone who is having a baby and you would like to give them a gift, rather than sending flowers, I strongly encourage you to go and look for the family postpartum pack on the website, Plan Archive. It's a really beautiful, useful resources and items, hand-selected which you can give to a family, which will not, which will acknowledge that they have a new member of their family, but also help them through that journey. And I just think it's so much more valuable than just sending flowers. Sorry if you're a florist. I don't mean to be like that. But honestly, when you are postpartum, you don't need flowers. You need other things, resources, you know, fresh meals, all that kind of thing. But if you're sending to someone, so please do go to the website. There's some really awesome stuff on there. And um, we we use that at work to help our families uh, because I think it's just so important to have something useful for a family who's mm. entering that season. And I'm going to go one step further because nothing bothers me more than incredible women selling their self short. So the point of difference for you, and correct me if I'm wrong, is that you have taken the time to really research the products and check things like are they in line with safety standards and things like that and you also don't have a lot of range on your website and that's because you don't want to add to that overwhelm because sometimes you can look at do we need the zip up swaddles or the stretchy ones or the wrap your hands over each other and it can be so <laughs> overwhelming for the new mum to try to you know troll through all those items and make a choice so it's just like there is no one baby product which is going to change your life. So here's one really good one. And yeah. I'm going to take the mental load out of it for you and you can just come straight to me and know that something you're getting is going to be good and safe and wonderful. Um, and I have purchased from your store and that has always been my experience. So I love what you're doing and I didn't <laughs> want to close up the interview without honouring how incredible what you have created is. 100%. Oh, you two are so gorgeous. Thank you so much. Um, yeah, we always sell ourselves short don't we totally <laughs> so, so I really appreciate that not only yeah. in that space but also on Instagram and thank you for your time here today it's been such a pleasure yeah thank you guys thank you so much enjoy the rest of your beautiful day thanks for joining us for today's conversation if you want to hear more like this don't forget to hit subscribe so you don't miss an episode if you'd like to know more about anything we talked about or you heard on the podcast today check out our website www.birthofamother.com.au you can find us on instagram at matrescence.podcast or send us an email to info at birthofamother.com.au if you think others could benefit from this podcast take a screenshot of you listening to this episode to post on your social media and tag us alternatively consider leaving a review with your favorite things about the matrescence podcast this really helps us to increase our visibility and ensure we are reaching as many women as possible. As always, thank you for spending your time with us. We hope you will tune in next time.